You're listening to Policy Speaking. I'm your host, Edward Greenspawn, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're chatting about the future of workplaces, the physical spaces, the buildings upon buildings that were once buzzing with employees, and now some have fairly skeptical employees within. The questions around return to work are still gripping many businesses and workplaces, and it has become a major point of contention in governments, too. The federal government is a major employer and is trying to make some form of hybrid model work with mandatory minimum office hours. All this has major implications for the use of real estate, the service industries that clean those buildings and feed those office workers, and the culture of remote or hybrid workplaces. Here with us today to chat about the state of work and the federal public service is Stefan Derry, the Assistant Deputy Minister of Real Property Services at Public Services and Procurement Canada, and a federal public service leader with a side hustle as host of a podcast on the workplace and the future of work. He gets to see a lot of workers in a lot of workplaces and pick up on a lot of trends. This episode of Policy Speaking was recorded live during one of PPF's Member Fridays recently. First of all, welcome to Policy Speaking. Thank you very much, Ed, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here today. And as we'll discuss a little bit later, you are a podcaster yourself, but we'll get to that in the course of discussion. I want to start with you as a landlord and as Assistant Deputy Minister of Real Property Services. So how many buildings are in your portfolio? How many square feet are in your portfolio? How many people are working in those buildings? That's an interesting question on how many people are working in the building since well, the we'll pandemic. Well, we'll come to that in more detail. We'll yeah. get to that a little bit later. But really, PSPC is and the Real Property Services is kind of the real estate expert of the government of Canada. And we house anywhere from around 270,000 civil servants across the country from coast to coast to coast, representing 105 departments and agencies and uh, in approximately over 1,500 buildings across the country. The portfolio is approximately 75 million square feet of space, which makes us one of the, if not the largest, landlord in Canada. Within the government, though, we're 28% of the space that is managed by the government of Canada from a square feet perspective. Like, What we manage doesn't include national defense, as an example, with their military base and all this. But it does include every office building where the government of Canada house employee. does include engineering asset bridges for those that are familiar with Ottawa. The Alexandra Bridge under our management includes dams that are in between provinces, dams. We even have a graving dock and a ship building port in Vancouver that we own and operate as part of our portfolio. It's why we say it's a quite a diverse portfolio when you manage laboratory, federal courts, the Supreme Court of Canada, and office space, and also a grieving dock to repair and maintain large ship makes for quite an operation honestly, for the government of Canada. So we're quite happy of how we manage our portfolio and looking forward to give you a little bit more detail around what the future looks like for this portfolio. 
Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to getting at the future, but let's start in the present at the moment, which you held yourself back on, restrained yourself at the moment, which is, you know, what is the state of play? Let's start with physically with people at work, and then we'll get to it in more of a uh, qualitative way as well. Absolutely. I would say that as the clerk of the Privy Council said, the future for public servant will be hybrid, hybrid workplace. And most departments have been experimenting with what hybrid means for them. And obviously, it's quite different from one department to another. You know, a prison guard versus a knowledge worker, a statistician, don't require the same workplace than somebody that works in a lab or works at the border service agency, as an example, the border between Canada and the U.S. So there's still jobs. There's about, I would say, 15% of the work that civil servant does that require to be present in the office or at the place of work, like I was talking about Correctional Services Canada, where other function like policy writing, like policy development, like knowledge worker, statistician, researcher, could be done more in an hybrid function where they don't need to be in the office all the time and they need to be somewhere where they can accomplish their function. Like the public service demonstrated in the two year of the pandemic since March, 2020, that they were able to do a lot of things and accomplish a significant amount of work from a remote location. You know, from 2020, 80 to 85% of the civil servant moved away from the office, moved into their home and started working. And the government was still able to launch major program completely with people working from different places. So that was a big shift, but that also opened the door to change in the way we work. It may be that it's possible to do it. I wonder for those people who must be at work because of the nature of their work, who must do the commute every day, go into an office every day, versus those whose jobs, their pointy head jobs, allow them to work wherever they are. I'm a person with a pointy head job, so I understand that. But is there a concern about a horizontal equity there? I remember someone, one of the CEOs of one of the Canadian banks saying, you know, we're worried that our tellers must be at work and our investment bankers who make a lot more money don't have to be at work. And, you know, what kind of fairness that will have in the workplace? This is an interesting question that I think will evolve over time. The answer to the question, I think, will evolve over time because those tellers that need to be in the banks over time, they may be better compensated because they have to be in the office and they have. And I'm saying that all this is my personal opinion. Because with the talent war that there is right now around the world, and we'll have a chance to talk about the workplace network and the work we're doing with our colleagues around the world, but with the talent war that there is presently around the world and almost full employment in many countries, like you look at the U.S. with a 3.5% unemployment rate and about 5% here in Canada, it's a market that employees are saying, where can I thrive the most? in an environment that is fulfill my needs. So we still believe that the office will attract a lot of people and will attract employee, but maybe not the office we had in the past. And we need to rethink our offices in order to attract and retain the talent that we want in, our, in the government, also in the private sector. 
Right. And I want to come back to that rethink. I got a lot of things piling up here that I want to get back to. The hybrid model, one of the things I hear from a number of people in departments is that they are told they must go to the office now two to three days a week. How is that going down? What is that doing in morale terms? Are people happy with that? Well, it's an interesting question. And as the clerk of the Privy Council said, different departments are testing different approach to hybrid. And some department, I could speak for my our department, with PSPC under the leadership of our deputy, we've decided that we want to go in the office for purposeful moment. And we believe that there's a need, you know, you talk that somebody that has to be in the office on a daily basis, there's a need for employee coming together to brainstorm, to resolve problems, to create and to innovate together. That community is, and building that community is essential. In some department, it may mean a couple of days a week. In other, it may mean three days a week. In other department, we were talking uh, even yesterday for a service call center. As an example, maybe a service call center won't need to be in the office as often as another function. And I think that approach and department are taking different approach. And I think department are testing. What does that mean for them? Because each department, the 105 department I was talking about have different mandate and different objectives. So deputy minister are looking at how they can accomplish their objective and how they will implement in their department the hybrid work model. The president of the Professional Institute of the Public Service of Canada said that they've surveyed their 70,000 members and 60% of them just want to work from home. 25% would like to do a hybrid, 10 would like to be in the office, but 60% would like to be at home. Why can't they be at home? It worked in the pandemic. I mean, from my perspective, we built the pandemic on the capital we already had built with our employee. We hired a lot of new employee that never seen an office, never seen their colleagues, in fact, other than on the screen. And there's also a think about the pandemic. Last night, you you probably heard on the, their new variant coming. There's all of that. So people are still unsecure from a pandemic perspective. But most people that come into an office that's been renewed, that come to the office to meet people and collaborate, enjoy the experience. We're social human. We need that social connection. Again, it's different from people writing policy than from people answering a call center. But we're still human people that like to be with other people. A colleague of mine from uh, the UK was saying, you know, in the UK, they're thinking about their offices, the future of their office as the four C's, a place where people will come to collaborate, create, care about each other and also to build a sense of community. Well, that's totally different than from office in the past was. Office in the past were a place where you go to work. Sometimes you would sit at your cubicle for an entire day without talking to anybody. Or maybe that works. Some of this work can be done at home, but you still earlier before the interview, we were talking and how you were getting out of your office to meet certain people that were going for a pipe outside a certain time, that was extremely valuable to you because you were getting information, you were cultivating relationship. That's something that's hard to do only through a screen. Although I believe technology is the future and it allowed us to do these kind of meetings, but it's hard to build a, a strong relationship to a, a monitor. 
A bit earlier, you started to talk about rethinking the office and that this is an opportunity to rethink the office. So maybe you could just continue down that path about what the office of the future for the government of Canada, in what ways will it look different? I think we are moving towards a space that is a lot more flexible than it used to be. And I used to call the office of the past the cubicle farm that we had, you know, rows and rows of cubicle where 90% of our office space was cubicle where people would sit all by themselves. When the pandemic hit us in 2020, as I said earlier, from one day to the next, 80 to 85% of civil servant and private sector company employee ended up to be at home and working from home and were able to deliver. Now, the pandemic, I'm not saying the pandemic is completely over, but we see light at the end of the tunnel and we started to bring back people. And through a series of podcasts, you were talking about our podcast series. We did a series of podcasts with 12 international leader in real property from 10 different countries and two provinces, Ontario and British Columbia. And through that, we saw that the entire civil servant across all and country like the United States, the UK, Netherlands, Finland, all of these countries, Australia also, all of these countries are aiming in the same direction, provide more flexibility to employee and to organization and provide a space where it will attract people to come in and also retain talent in the organization. So that places that are IT enabled, you need top IT infrastructure in order to function in today's world. Top IT infrastructure, a place where you can collaborate. You can sit down uh, instead of being behind a desk, you can sit down and collaborate with a colleague, have a discussion with a colleague because the reason you'll come to the office will be different than the reason you were coming to the office before. So in the government of Canada, for this, we're implementing what we call GC Workplace, and we're moving towards, and we're proposing to the government of Canada, a hub and spoke model. And I could talk in detail, if you wish, on the hub but and I, spoke I, I'd model. Li- I'd like to hear a little bit more about the hub and spoke model, yeah. So the hub and spoke model, and I'll say with that through the podcast series and my colleague around the world, there's a lot of country, Australia, the UK, the United States are all looking at implementing a hub and spoke model. And some of them have been implementing it since 2012, 2013. Basically, what will for a large department or smaller department, they'll have the hub, which is going to be the head office, the headquarters of the department. It's going to be probably smaller than what it is today. And it's going to have the core function of the department, right? The deputy minister, the minister, corporate services function that are ATIP, as an example, or uh, strategic planning. These core function will be the department in those space will also have a sign of the culture of the department, the sense of community to the department, where they're going to bring people on and off to work with them. And that hub will be supported by multiple spoke. And the spoke could be a GC co-working we call in Orleans, where people around Orleans that work in Orleans can come and work and collaborate together. Don't need to be in the same department. If you're doing a project with another department, then you can come to that spoke and collaborate. Again, it's all IT enabled. It's got top uh, digital tool, so you can work there. A spoke could be a house. 
A spoke could be a regional office where civil servants from any department can go work. So if it's large, large departments, some of the spoke will also be departmental spoke. But we're aiming to more of a government of Canada space other than the hub, more towards a government of Canada space than a departmental space. And we're moving from my space to our space. And from my personal space towards more of a government of Canada space to support the diversity and support and encourage diversity, inclusion, accessibility, and greening of our footprint. So I'm going to go to, we got a number of questions building up, and I'm going to go to them in one second. Those people with cameras on will get rewarded by uh, getting their question asked higher up the pecking order. I do want to just ask you one more thing about this international network and the podcast that you're doing, the uh, the workplace network and the podcast that you've done. So as you've talked to your colleagues around the world, is there anything that really has wowed you? Is there something where you go... We need to do that. We want to do that. Like, who's really innovative out there? And what does innovative look like? One, the first realization when I started these podcasts, what drive me to start these podcasts is, and, you know, I was named ADM of Real Property in August of 2019, just about six, seven months before the pandemic. The pandemic hit us. And in November 2019, the group asked me to be the president of the Workplace Network, TWN. So a few months after, what I call the largest pilot project on telework around the globe was in motion. And as soon as I saw that, I said, we're all in the same boat together. And why reinvent the wheel and not start looking what's working in some country? And that's why we started those podcast series to exchange together and see what can we learn from each other from the pandemic but now it has evolved into greening, accessibility, efficiency of management of our portfolio, all kinds of things. And what came out of these podcasts is basically we were all going in the same direction, all looking to flexibility of our portfolio, rethinking our space. But I could tell you that we're probably, at the time, we were probably seven to 10 years behind where the UK were and the Northern European country. Now, I don't know the reason behind that. Is that because real estate is a lot more expensive in Europe and it's smaller? Is that why they were advancing faster? But, you know, the hub and spoke model, as I just spoke, is in place in the UK since about 2013, when they started to move jobs outside of London and created hub in a region outside of the greater London so that civil servant can go and work and live in their community. So that was already in place there. You could see that also in other Northern European country where they had flexible work arrangement were already in place way before the pandemic. Why? Because there was a lot of traffic. So they wanted to reduce the traffic. They wanted to reduce the commuting. So they worked with flexible work arrangement. The pandemic showed us, though, that is accelerating that. And we need to really move to the office of the future. And I'll just repeat the 4C, collaboration, caring, creativity, and the sense of community. That's basically what the future of office will look like. More collaboration space, less individual space. So when you go in the office, if you want to, you'll have a desk where you could work all by yourself on your own. But you'll have a lot more opportunity to collaborate and to bring people to think together, depending on the work function also. 
So I think that's quite similar, I suppose, to the private sector. I was in uh, the new headquarters of Microsoft Canada two weeks ago for a podcast we were doing, and that's the same kind of thinking that they have, right? It's quite similar to, and I visited the Microsoft headquarters in Toronto about a month and a half ago. They moved from Mississauga. That's a perfect example that they moved from Mississauga, reduced their floor space by about 35%. And if I remember right, and they modernized their space for attracting talent and retaining talent. They moved downtown Toronto. Right on top of Union Station. So they're the transportation hub. Exactly. So that's quite important. Transportation hub in the future of work. People can come easy to come to and to work from and then easy to commute. So these thinking, and if you saw in their space, they have a lot more collaboration space. They, I believe, triple the amount of collaboration space that they have, little room where people can go and have teams meeting and work together and all IT enable. You walk into a room and the teleconference talks to your phone and, oh, you're in this room, you need to connect, here you go. So all of this is really what we're aiming to in the federal government. It will take technology, it will take people, it will take physical footprint in order to work together to make this happen. Okay, let's go. I have at least another hour and a half worth of questions, but I won't uh, indulge myself and bore everyone else. Let us go to a couple of questions in the chat. And I'm going to start with this one. What can you tell us about all-inclusive gender washrooms and the designs, the consultation process with 2S LGBTQI plus communities and the plans to get it all done What considerations for ensuring all gender washrooms are being made for new builds and leases going forward? Thank you for the, uh, and a fairly detailed question. First of all, we really in PSPC and in the government, we want to promote and we really believe in all access washrooms. So what we did at PSPC, we issued a functional direction to all of our engineer, architect, anybody that's in the building business in early May so that any new building will have to have all-access washroom. We have to meet codes also because code was still under men and women washroom. But all our new construction, major rehabilitation or retrofit a building will involve working an existing washroom when it's a retrofit and ensuring that consideration is given to designing and installing fully accessible all-access washroom. So that's for the new building renovation to existing building or recapitalization of large existing building. When it comes to the leasing, any new lease also will be looking to ensure that they meet CSA standard 2018 and the National Builder Code of Canada and that they include all access washroom in all of our renewed or new lease that we're putting in place. We want to push the industry to ensure that this is a feature that's not an optional feature. It is a feature that is part of the lease, part of the document and the contract that we sign. When it comes to building, and so we talked about where we do major retrofit, talk about the lease. When it comes to building that we're not planning to do a retrofit, with the future of work, we're looking at which asset are strategic asset that we'll keep for the long term. And we're looking at those to implement all access washroom in all of these facility first as we're going and as funding is made available so that we can ensure that all of our building have all access washroom. 
the person who asked that question, if you want to put in the chat, if you're satisfied with the answer, or if you want to follow up, that will be great. I'm going to go to another question in the meantime. This is an important question because the life of cities is not just inside the buildings. The buildings are catalysts to all sorts of different kinds of activity. The downtown YMCA in Ottawa announced yesterday it is selling its building and moving. One less reason to go to downtown Ottawa. Given the massive presence of the government of Canada in Ottawa, does public work see itself as having a role in providing access to recreational or cultural spaces for workers that foster relationship building, physical and mental health? Have you done cost-benefit analysis of how better spaces lowers health costs uh, for employers and increases learning? And I guess I would just add to that what responsibility you feel to all of the satellite businesses near those buildings. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting question. And Ottawa is not the only one in that situation. I was in Regina not too long ago where we see a similar situation where because of less presence from federal, either provincial, federal employee in the building, there's been a little, I would say, less attraction or it's been more difficult for businesses to sustain their operation in area like that. I mean, and I'll make a parallel with Toronto in a few minutes, we're looking at and we'll be working with the city of Ottawa, the city of Gatineau, to look at how some of our building could be repurposed. We're working as a stewardship of a massive portfolio, which is about 50% lease, 50% own. We've been working on which asset in our portfolio, and that before the pandemic, which asset in our portfolio we're thinking should be released from the portfolio, should put on the market for sale and help transform these assets into either a social housing and selling them to redevelopment so that their redeveloping uh, asset or land we create live, work, and play neighborhood where you could see economic redevelopment. We're doing that in Ottawa as an example. In Confederation Height and Tunney's Pasture, there's two redevelopment where we're working closely with colleagues from Canada Land Corporation to see how we can revive some of these area and bring government presence, operation, but also maybe multi-unit apartment, multi-use buildings where you can have commercial offices and uh, people living there. Just so I understand, would these be existing buildings that are underutilized that would go in part towards residential and commercial use? knowing that we need a lot of supply of residential housing in this country. Absolutely. That's one of the objective of the government of Canada, you know, making federal building that are surplus to government of Canada available for redevelopment. And I'm not saying that all the buildings of the government of Canada are well suited to be converted into condominium or apartment or things like that. You know, that's a structural analysis, a design and all of this. But if some of those could be used for that purpose. I think we owe it to the city to work with them and see what is feasible. And that's what PSPC is doing with its own portfolio and hoping to, within the next six months, being able to publish the list and saying, here's what could be done. Here's the building that could be available for redevelopment within the national capital region. And if that is well received, doing the same thing across the country. Here's another question that I think is very important to a lot of people, very important to me, because retention of your workers is a, an important issue in a tight labor market, obviously, an important issue in any labor market, but particularly in a tight labor market. So 
the question very simply, and I don't know if there's empirical evidence here, Stefan, but what kind of workspace attracts and retains people? Is there a particular kind of workspace or work arrangement that helps attract and retain people? I would say, yes, there is. And it also depends on the age group that you're trying to target, to be honest. It all depends that with talking to my European colleagues, where you have smaller apartments, you may not want to be working in your apartment all day. That also influences the people where they want to work. A couple of weeks ago, I was meeting with WeWork in Montreal. Visit a space like WeWork, space as a service. We just signed a contract in Ottawa as a pilot project for the federal government for space as a service. We didn't sign a contract with WeWork, but we did a tender and a company, I believe Loft, won the tender and we signed a contract with them. And this is space that comes already with collaborating space, welcoming space, like things you wouldn't see in the 1980, 1990, even 2000 space, where you have a few couch where people can sit and have a coffee and talk together and exchange idea. That's what brings people in and that's what's retained people is that sense of community. I'm coming back to the 4C. I think I'll adopt them for the government also. But the <laughs> sense of community and the caring for one another because we're not machine. When you work somewhere, you're building a community. You're working with other human being and you want to feel that sense of culture and that sense of community. So how can we create that? cultural element that are specific to the department for which you have this hub and then area where people can feel comfortable to come in and work. We did, even before the pandemic, we converted some offices in Montreal. I would say we called it Montreal 2018. It's been published in all kinds of magazine. We had more attendance to the office from our existing employee after we converted our space to an activity-based workplace with these kind of space for collaboration, easy to get in, highly IT-enabled, where people just come in. And I'll give you an example of that. My colleagues, when I visited the U.S. and just before the pandemic, my colleagues with me walked into the building. His telephone told them, oh, I see you haven't reserved a space today. I have this, this, or this available. Oh, by the way, it didn't speak, but it tried that to him. By the way, your colleague is on this space. And you have your team that you used to work for is located in this area. Would you want me to reserve you an area to work in that space? That's the kind of user experience that people are looking for, really okay, I, facilitating their life. We're going to do a short snapper back on washrooms. Yes. Washrooms are very important to people. And I tell you, I used to work at Bloomberg and in the New York City office of Bloomberg, there were very few washrooms, and we all thought that was on purpose to, you know, make sure that everybody would be hurry out of the washroom quickly. Nobody would take time because there was always a lineup. So Kim, who asked the question previously, is happy to hear all access washrooms are being considered commonplace, and thanks you. But Sarah wants to know, do you also have gendered washrooms or only all access washrooms in the new build? In the new build, and we have to comply to the Canadian Construction Code. So the standard that are in the Canadian Construction Code, and they're evolving. Before, we have, depending on how many people you have in a building, you had to have so many for women, so many for men. Today, they're changing that. We'll have all-access washroom, but we'll also have gendered washroom 
men and women washroom for those that would prefer those, right? So, but we all have to build those according to code and we'll follow the code in some area where it was a problem for us in the past to evolve as fast. That fast, it's because the code still asks for so many washrooms for men and women in each of the building where we were. So we're evolving with the code, pushing for having all access washroom and also gendered washroom. They'll be basically available for everyone. That's good. That's great. Yeah. Stefan, we have only a minute or two left. I keep thinking about the surplus space that you have and your desire to repurpose it. I fiscally, it also goes through my head. How much value was here for the government of Canada that we can use for whatever purposes are deemed right, whether it's paying down the debt or turning $10 childcare into $5 childcare, whatever it is. But so is there a value that you can place on the surplus space, a market value on it? I couldn't place a market value. Like we're working with 105 departments to measure their need for space in the future. So once we're finalizing with the department, those 105 departments, how much space will they need in the future? Then we'll look at our entire portfolio, 75 million square feet, where it is located, which one fits in that requirement. And then we'll calculate from there how much property we have in excess property and what should we do with it. In some area, we're more advanced. And in some area, I should say that we already had excess property before the pandemic. And that's those that we want to put on the market and work with the city to see how they can be used, obviously, through a stringent disposal process. Okay, and you may not have a year the, from now. I'll be able to answer your question. Okay, well, then we'll ask you the question here for now, because, of course, if 20% of your space is surplus to your needs, let's say, that's, you know, what did you say, 75, that's 15 million square feet. That's a lot of value, it seems. Of course, the value in downtown Toronto is different than the value in Whitehorse, but nonetheless, uh, a lot of value that could be gleaned by the government of Canada or you know, invested in the repurposing for other uses in society. So we gained a lot of insight today. I appreciate that. It seems that there's more to gain next time we speak. So I look forward to that as well. Stefan, I want to thank you for all of your knowledge and sharing it with us. Been a pleasure. Thank you, Ed. At this point in the show, we'd like to share a shout out to one of our PPF members for going above and beyond the call of duty. This week, we want to express how PPF proud we are of our member Manulife for being recognized as one of the world's best employers by Forbes in 2022 for the third year in a row. Manulife is guided by a philosophy of promoting greater colleague connectivity, engagement, and inclusion to develop its winning team. So congratulations to PPF member Manulife for the recognition and for your leadership when it comes to focusing on employees' health, well-being, professional development, and commitment to excellence. And with that, it's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please share the episode with a friend and feel free to leave us a review of this week's episode or previous ones on the podcast platform of your choice. And let us know what you want to hear in future on Policy Speaking. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum who make this podcast happen. I'm Edward Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking.